Well, heidi ho, friends and neighbors, brothers and sisters. Welcome to Palm Sunday at Grace Fellowship. As you saw this morning, this traditionally marks the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey to shouts of praise and acclamation from the masses, some or many of whom would go on to cheer his death in just a few days' time. And I think maybe there's a lesson there, perhaps, for us as Christians, as the church, in trying to curry favor with the popular culture. We may well achieve immediate or short-term acceptance, but it won't last. When we don't do things their way, it won't last. The message of the gospel is just too offensive. We're not going to do a separate Palm Sunday kind of related sermon today. Uh, We're going to continue working our way through the book of Ephesians, which uh, uh, talks about the implications, anyway, of the cross, how it benefits us. Um, And before we jump in with today's text, I feel like we need to do a culture alert first. So by way of preface, uh, if you've been here for any length of time, you are now well aware of my constant endless haranguing about the dangers of false prophets and their false gospels. Galatians was an example of a false gospel. Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus whatever um, can become a false gospel. And, and, and we have warned that false teachers and false teaching can lead us in dangerous directions, namely away from Christ. And apparently it can also lead to strange traveling companions along the way. Uh, For example, I present to you this guy, Kevin Bivens, a self-professed Satanist. Just in the last week or so, he posted this TikTok video where he expresses his newfound gratitude for the progressive Christian movement. He goes on to say, I'm here to thank you Christians, progressive Christians, for your assistance in this fight against misinformation. If you believe in God, I support you. However, believe half of what you see and believe nothing of what you hear. He went on to say he's met a wave of Christian people on the popular video-sharing platform and that he has found favor among them. Progressive Christians are what the world needs right now, he asserted. We both agree that religion needs massive amounts of change. Between your flogged... I think he means flawed? Between your flogged Bibles, asinine ideals, and just outright misinformation, we've had enough. So he's found companionship. He's found camaraderie with progressive Christians. And by progressive Christians, he means that this uh, branch of Christianity that has embraced, among other things, the social justice movement, the the hardcore environmental movement, uh, they've embraced those ideals as equal to, or maybe in some cases more important than, the actual gospel message. They've equated those ideals or concepts with Scripture. Now, it seems like this should not need to be said. But if your branch of Christianity, if your personal vision or version of Jesus, if your interpretation and understanding of the Holy Bible puts you on the spiritual bus seated next to a Satanist, you may be on the wrong bus. It seems like you're on the highway to hell. That's your next destination. I mean, you may think in this progressive Christian mindset that you're, you're really cheering Jesus on 
as he rides into town on a donkey, but you're just a few days away from cheering him on to his death. And to be brutally honest, progressive Christian is an oxymoron. Biblical truth has little regard for your feelings about God and his word. He does not need us to set the record straight, to make it more palatable in our modern paradigm. Truth is what God has declared it to be in his book, and we have no business changing it, modifying it, or adapting it so that we all feel better about it. Our only option is to do our best to understand what's in the Bible, accept it as it is, or reject it and deal with the consequences after that. I saw a Facebook ad this week for a church having a service here in the, in the valley. <clears throat> and it listed a guest speaker, and the guest speaker was quoted on this advertisement as saying, I really wish someone would have shared Jesus with me in a way that doesn't make me look so bad, but points out how good God is. To which I would retort, we can't begin to understand how good God is until we really understand how bad we are. We don't need more feel-good Christianity. The more we understand and accept the depths of our depravity, the more God's grace is amplified. The greater God he becomes. And we begin to truly appreciate how great and good a God he is. That concludes sermon number one. Uh, I'm going to pray now, and we'll start sermon number two. That first one was just a freebie today. You got that just for showing up. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for, uh, for the fact that you are a good God. You are a gracious God and a loving God, and you love us in spite of our badness, in spite of how bad we are. Lord, we're going to see that clearly in the text that we're going to look at today. So I pray as we go through this section of Ephesians, uh, this letter that's written thousands of years ago and is still so deeply meaningful and applicable for us today, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you have for us, each of us, in this text before us today. We just thank you again for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last couple of weeks, Alice led us through the opening verses of the book of Ephesians, where Paul begins to introduce a couple of the big themes that we're going to look at throughout the book. Um, but, but as Al presented them, Paul cleverly disguises them as celebrations or blessings. We have the opportunity to honor God the Father. We are blessed with spiritual blessings that come from being a Christ follower. We can celebrate in our election that God chose us before the foundations of the world. That leads to our redemption. It leads to the celebration of Christ uniting all things in himself. We have a celebration of our inheritance to be found in Christ. These are all component pieces, reasons for celebration, component pieces of the big themes that we're going to explore throughout the book. All of these things start to work together to lead us to new life in Christ, a new family in the church, and a new purpose for all of life, for every area of life. Those are our big ideas. Those are the big themes of the book we're going to look at. <clears throat> and what's been interesting, too, is throughout this, this opening section and throughout the book, the rest of the book we're going to see, too, kind of hidden in plain sight, um, we're going to see the expansive, all-encompassing work of the Trinity. It will become clear, more clear as we go through the book. The, 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 these early verses say, The Father blessed us. He chose us before the foundations of the world. And through the redemption of his Son, Jesus Christ, we have received more blessing. And then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance until we finally are in heaven and get to take full advantage, all, oh, full advantage of our full inheritance. 
So for those who might say that the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible, they're partially right. That term, that word, is never used. But you'd have to be willfully ignorant not to see the concept on full display throughout. So the last couple of weeks, Al has covered what really has been a relatively short opening for one of Paul's letters. But what it makes up, what it lacks in verbosity or word count, it makes up for in doctrinal depth. Paul is rejoicing with the saints in Ephesus that they can share in these blessings together. He's writing to them as his family, his spiritual children. Remember, Paul helped found this church. He spent several years with them. And so all of this, all these blessings, all of these themes are all encapsulated, wrapped up, captured when Paul starts verse 15 with, for this very reason. For all of these reasons, for all the things I just laid out in the first 14 verses, all of the shared blessings, uh, being chosen by the Father, being adopted by the Son, being sealed with the Spirit, for this reason, <clears throat> because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a lot there. Nine verses, two sentences. The first one's kind of a doozy, so we're going to break it down into pieces uh, and look at this. We'll we'll break it down a little bit and see, starting with just the first part of verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Remember, Paul spent about three years with this church in times past, but now he's been away for a few years. But he still gets reports. He still gets status updates. He hears things about the church. And what he has heard is that they are continuing to grow in their love for the Lord. And what's more, it's evidenced by their love towards all the saints. I mean, Jesus had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he said, the greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor. So it seems like Paul is saying the church in Ephesus is doing just that. They're continuing to love God and they're loving their neighbor. It's working itself out in how they're treating people. So their faith in Jesus is not just lip service. They're actually living out their faith. It's expressed in how how they love the other saints. The mark of true redemption, the mark of spiritual adoption, is faith and love towards God and love towards our neighbors. It seems like they're inseparable. If you have the first, you're going to necessarily have the second. Which means, if we're not showing love towards men, if we're not showing love towards others, we may be lacking in the faith department. I think we would do well periodically to to take an inventory of, of how well we're showing love to others. How, do we, how are we interacting with people in our friend or family or, or neighbor circle? Are, are, we, are we interacting with them in a helpful way? Or, or, or not? Do we avoid them? Are our relationships one-sided? Do we just interact with people for what we can get out of the relationship? It seems like how we show love to our neighbors 
that's kind of a barometer for a measure of how much we love God. There, there's some connection there. We probably ought to do some diagnostic work every once in a while, just, just to see if we could use a little boost in one or both of those areas. But fortunately, Paul has heard good reports about the church in Ephesus. He's convinced that they are in Christ, they're fellow brothers and heirs, and his joy is full. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is first, he's grateful that the Lord is sustaining them and blessing them. The Lord's leading them into spiritual maturity, but he continues to pray for them constantly, consistently. And before we look at what Paul prays for, it just it kind of struck me as we're going through here, the list of things that Paul does not pray for. And number one on the list is, Paul does not pray for his release from prison. In fact, he doesn't pray for them to remember to pray for him to be released from prison. He's not asking for them to remember him at all. His prayers are all them-focused. If we're being honest, I think many of us, most of us at times, struggle with prayer to some degree. It, it's, maybe it's seasonal for us. We're, we're great for a while, and then you know life changes, and we're not okay for a while. And, and sometimes it seems awkward, or it seems a little weird to talk when there's nobody in the room. And <clears throat> our, our mind wanders. It wanders through all of the things we have on the to-do list for the day. We end up with kind of a distracted prayer. Or we have a list, and we, just, we know we got pressure and time, things to do, so we end up with this staccato, machine gun-type prayer, you know, just to get it over with quickly. And then when we do pray, a lot of the time it's kind of focused on me. My needs, my desires, my frustrations. I fall into this trap as well, and I know you do too. You don't have to shake your head in agreement. I know you do. I need to be reminded that when we pray, like Jesus taught us, he said, our Father, not mine, Give us our daily bread, not just mine. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Jesus' pattern for prayer, as it turns out, was plural. Mm. We've missed that. So when we struggle in our God conversing, when we struggle with praying, perhaps it would benefit us to start with others. It starts to change the process for us. We can follow Jesus' model, and perhaps we can even incorporate some of what we're going to see from Paul's prayer here on behalf of the saints in Ephesus. Paul says he prays for them constantly. And then he kind of gives us an overview of the kinds of things he prays for. First, he prays that they would just know God more and better. That they would be given the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of Wisdom, and knowledge of God. And it's interesting that he prays for both wisdom and knowledge. He prays for both of them. They are related, but they are not the same. Paul purposely uses both. Knowledge is generally just the, 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 the gathering of information, the acquisition of information that we gain through life experience or conversations with other people, things that we read. It's just stuff that we know. Wisdom is typically considered the ability to discern or judge 
what is true, what is right, what is lasting. So some make the distinction this way. Knowledge is the acquisition, acquisition of information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. We often get these distinctions wrong. Knowledge can often be passive. We don't have to try to learn stuff. I mean, hopefully we do, but we just, we just pick up things. It's often passive. Wisdom generally requires active process. We, we have to do something with the knowledge. There's a, I, I've mentioned this before, I think, but there's a popular expression these days that says that knowledge is power, and I think that's absolutely wrong. I think at best, knowledge is potential power. Knowing stuff is great, but just plain knowledge is in and of itself inert. It's lifeless. Some might say pointless. Those are usually those people that don't like to play Trivial Pursuit. It's just pointless to know stuff. The real power comes from knowing how to apply knowledge. That's where wisdom comes in. So this kind of reinforces what Paul has just said. He's already referenced the church in Ephesus. He says they know God. That's knowledge. And they're growing in their love of the Lord. And it's evidenced by how they show their love toward the saints. That's the wisdom part. It's active. Paul prays for more of that. I want them to know God and know him better. And then that's going to work itself out in wisdom. Now, this also struck me that he says, revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is, this is just my own made-up insight. I didn't read this anywhere, so judge this for what it's worth. Discount completely. I don't care. But I thought it was in, in, interesting that Paul says the revelation here. I think this might be a nod to the fact that Ephesus was a city steeped in the occult. So visions and ecstatic experiences were commonplace for the people in Ephesus. Paul's point may be that the only revelation that you can or should trust is the revelation that leads to the knowledge of God. His emphasis is not on the experience or the revelation, but on where the experience or revelation leads. If it leads you away from God, you ought to discount it, ignore it. So the goal is to gain wisdom and knowledge of God. Not just to say that we have a revelation. And again, he crouches this request. If you read through this, it's, it's, crouch, it's couched in terms of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. And we still combat this experiential element in churches today where Christians are being taught that God wants them. The Lord expects them to have some kind of an experience. Real believers have to have an encounter with God, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. If you haven't had an encounter, an experience, a revelation, you probably just haven't arrived as a Christian yet. Tongues, visions, prophecies, dreams, what, what, whatever it is, you're just not yet spiritual unless you've had one or more of those things. I mean, those are the hallmarks of the true Christian faith. Paul seems to indicate here that wisdom and the knowledge of God are what matter most. Wisdom and knowledge that leads us to love our neighbor, to grow both in our, our, our vertical relationship with Jesus and our horizontal relationship with other people. That's the spiritual foundation he's praying for for the church in Ephesus. Not for some out-of-body, ecstatic utterance or vision. He wants them to know God better. And then he prays that they would know God's calling. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now remember, Paul's just said that wisdom and knowledge, those are the two critical components of 
spiritual enlightenment. Wisdom and knowledge come from the Holy Spirit. But then Paul seems to equate here wisdom and knowledge with having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. It almost sounds kind of ironic. I mean, wisdom and knowledge, that's head stuff, right? But then we talk about the heart. Well, that's emotion. You know, the heart equals love. Valentine's Day, that kind of stuff. Love is the granddaddy of emotion, we're told. So how do we reconcile Paul's prayer for knowledge and obedience to truth and his appeal to our hearts, our emotions, to be enlightened? It seems almost counterintuitive. Except that, in the Bible, the heart refers to much, much more than simple or even complex, multi-layered emotions. In Scripture, the heart refers to really what we call the inner man. It's kind of our core being. It includes emotion. The heart includes emotion, but it also includes our mind. It includes our will. It's kind of the sum total of our consciousness. The heart is our control center. It's not just a mush factory. Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart, and his commands enlighten the eyes. So there's this connection between the heart and, and the eyes and, and vision. It's all, it's all connected somehow. And in Matthew 13, 9, Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, as far as we know, the crowd Jesus was talking to, they probably all had ears. So he's not talking about just physical ears. He's not being discriminatory. Let's, let's, not, let's not translate this for the deaf people. Just for you people with ears. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about an audible hearing, but then there's a deeper hearing, there's a deeper understanding of what Jesus is teaching. And Psalm 34, 8 says, the inner man can taste. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we are to acknowledge, understand his goodness. It's much deeper than just taste buds. It's, it's somewhere down in here that we understand that the Lord is good. So there's this poetic, euphemistic kind of language that, that we are to understand and appreciate on all levels, on all senses, that the Lord is good. So it's really an all-encompassing inner and outer man. Tasting here is a heart issue. So Paul's prayer for an enlightened heart is really a request for a fully-orbed physical and spiritual awareness of the power and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's a big prayer request. But it's important. Perhaps you have had in your life a, a spiritual discussion uh, with a friend or a family member um, who, who's not a believer. And as you go through the discussion, you present your best apologetic argument for the truth of Scripture. Or, or maybe you just lay out your, your best gospel presentation. You, you lay out your best argument, and to your surprise, your friend or family member, whoever, they really can't disagree. They really don't question anything that you have said. I mean, they can't find any real, real fault in anything that you presented to them, and yet they just can't quite buy in. They can't quite yield to the pull of the Spirit and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you know it's not a lack of intelligence on their part. right? It's, it's not necessarily an emotional issue. It might not even be an, an, an issue of just their will. It's a combination of these things. It's a heart issue. It's a fight for the inner man that perhaps they can't even articulate themselves. And it can be difficult to pinpoint when we're talking about this inner 
man, this heart issue. But it's what we mean when we sing, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Our vision didn't improve, but our heart, the control center, has changed. I understand now the hope to which he has called me. I've received his gift of salvation. I rejoice in it. And that's the first universal calling placed on all of us, that we would come to know the hope, really the promises associated with our salvation. And after we respond affirmatively to this call to Christ, then the calling from there on for each of us begins to change somewhat. It's personalized for each of us in our lives, in our lifestyle, our context. Beyond the call to salvation, we're all each called to live out our Christian life in different ways. But there are common traits among our various callings. God the Father has first called us to receive the hope offered through the Son, Jesus, and then the Spirit calls us, among other things, calls us to be pure, he calls us to be obedient, he calls us to be faithful. In short, he calls us to practice what we preach. To let knowledge lead to wisdom. Our newfound hope leads to a new calling, a new way of living, which we'll continue to explore throughout the book. Well, Paul goes on. He says, here's another thing I'm praying for. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is probably my favorite thing on this prayer list. As part of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, having a a physical and spiritual sense of the working of the Spirit, knowing now that we have hope in Christ, Paul prays that we would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And truth be told, more often than not, I think we read through this text and kind of miss the big idea behind it. You know, when you're just doing your, your, your daily reading, I think we can miss the impact of this. Paul has just laid out in the beginning of this letter, the opening here, all the ways that the Lord has blessed us and and the ways that he continues to bless us. And that list itself is pretty extraordinary. And then we get to this phrase just a few verses later about inheritance. And and, and maybe we're inclined to think back to that other list, perhaps, that other list of blessings. Or or we think of the ways maybe that we have inherited God's grace in our life and, and he blesses us in finances or relationships or work or whatever. Or, or maybe we think about being joint heirs with Christ and we're, we're included in the inheritance of this eternal kingdom that we cannot earn and we do not deserve. And these are all great and powerful and wonderful things, but that's not what this is about. That's not what this phrase is about. I think we've confused our pronouns here. I think that's the proper grammatical term. We've confused, I don't know, we've misplaced a modifier or we've, dangle the diphthong. I don't know what we've done, but <clears throat> anyway, I think when we read through this, we, we, we often read it wrong. The text doesn't talk about the inheritance we have in him. It says his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul prays that the Christians, the church, would, would, would gain some understanding, some awareness of how highly God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how highly they value us. From God's perspective, 
We are his glorious inheritance. We the saved, we the redeemed, we the church, we are his wealth. We are his treasure. We're his inheritance. This is mind-blowing. It ought to be faith-building that an almighty, all-powerful God, eternally existing beyond time and place in three persons, I mean, he's so far removed from us, he's so far other, so far different from us, we don't really understand all that we know about him. And yet, we are his treasure. We are his glorious inheritance. Just let that sink in for a minute. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are on the list of God's greatest assets. It doesn't really matter how we feel about ourselves. It matters more how God sees us. And it made me wonder, if we get our pronouns wrong here, maybe we've also put the emphasis on the wrong syllable when we read through John 3.16. Maybe it's not that God so loved the world. Maybe it's that God so loved the world. That he gave his son to die for us. He treasures us that highly. And the reality is, the, the only way that a righteous and holy God could treasure us so dearly is if he sees in us what he created us to be, not what we have been. If he sees what Jesus died for us to be, not who we were before our salvation. If he sees what he now considers us to be, redeemed and righteous, rather than depraved and desperate. From unlovable to highly loved and inestimably esteemed. I mean, the enemy tells us we're worthless. God says we are his glorious inheritance. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, our, our, our tottering faith, our moments of moral and ethical failure, our cave-ins to temptation are all washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We're free. We're free from our past. We're free to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of the God who created us, who so loved us that he sent his son to die for us to give us hope and a calling. He has decided to love us even when, by our own understanding, we're unlovable. And he doesn't just love us. He didn't just send his son to die for us. He glories in us. He values us enough to consider us his most precious inheritance. It is impossible to overstate the depth and meaning of Paul's few words here. He prays for the church in Ephesus. He, he prays for Christians everywhere for us to get a vision of this, for us to get a sense of the meaning of this, because it will change us. It will change how we live. And that's not the end of Paul's prayer request for us. He prays that we would know God's power. 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God has shown his great love for us by making us his inheritance. He's promised us a future. He's, he's encouraged our hope. Paul has prayed for our wisdom and knowledge that leads us to God himself. And then he prays for us to have a sense of God's power that's available to those who believe. And, and I say he prays for us to have a sense of the power because I think that's all we're going to get. We just get a sense of it. We get a glimpse of it. Paul himself describes it as immeasurably great. God's power is so great, it's, it's so vast, it's so powerful, it can't be measured by yardsticks or scales or thermometers or quantum physics or Hubble telescopes or Hadron colliders. It can't be measured. So Paul understands that God's power, is, it's, it's beyond us. He even uses a variety of, uh, of words here and phrases to help give us a sense of the size, the immensity of God's power. He says the <clears throat> power, which is a Greek word, dunamis, that's where we get the word dynamite. God's power is working. The Greek word is also translated energy. His might. All in that sentence. Paul has to use several words to give us the big idea of the big power that resides in God. And then he gives us a few examples of this power. He says it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, it raised him from the, ga- from the grave and kept raising him until Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It's the immeasurable power that put Jesus far above everyone and everything. There's a kind of a typical Jewish literary device here. You stress the significance of something by repeating it. Right? So it says, the power that put Jesus above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. I mean, we're talking about pretty big power here. All the alls. He's above all the alls. God's immeasurable power that's put the name of Jesus above every other name that is named. And the inference here is not just uh, the name that's named, but every name that has ever been named and every name that is going to be named. Jesus is bigger than that. Which he amplifies again when he says, and not only in this age, but in the age to come. Forever and always, name above all names, that's power. That just starts to give us an idea. Again, we're limited in our ability to understand. That starts to give us an idea of the power that Paul's referring to here. The power that he wants us to be at least aware of, even if we can't fully grasp it. It's the power of God activated and displayed through Jesus It's the greatest power that is in this life or any other, in this earth or any other, in this universe or any other, in this era or any other. It is immeasurably great. And as followers of Christ, it flows towards us. It works on our behalf. So again, consider the context of Ephesus here. This is the culture that's being driven by the occult, by pagan practices. This is an extremely important reminder for the church then, and as it turns out, for the church now. Paul says you have access to this immeasurably great power. As the adopted joint heirs of Jesus Christ, as beneficiaries of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have access to this world-dominating power. 
so you have nothing to fear from your pagan pseudo-spiritual culture. I don't care how many big temples they build to whichever god they build them. I alone am immeasurably great. I alone am immeasurably powerful. Those are hunks of wood and stone. So stand strong. Stand firm in your faith. Oh, I know, it's true. The spirit is willing, but the flesh can be weak. This says, guess what? You're not dependent on your flesh alone. You're sealed with the Spirit. He's your guarantee of the hope that you have. He's your guarantee of the promise that is to come. So Paul wants them to know of the greatness of God's power so that they know, so that we know that when the devil and his cohorts attack, they need not prevail. When they tempt us, we need not give in. When they lie to us and they accuse us of our past, We need not listen. Their power does not, it cannot, and it will not ever match the power and surpassing greatness of the Almighty Creator. He is immeasurably powerful. What an encouragement this is to the church, to any church, in dark times. So Paul lays this out, he gives us a reminder of the hope that we have, and then he pumps it up. You know, with this on steroids, with this talk about God's power. And then Paul gives us this quick summation of kind of what he's just said. Why and how these prayer items are important for us. And it really almost serves as a purpose statement for the church. The last couple of verses. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God put all things under Jesus' feet. And just again, just reflect on the, the, the scale, the size of this for a moment. We're not talking about, you know, a God among other gods. We're not talking about like the Greek hierarchy of gods, or Zeus sits at the top of the God heap, and there are all these other gods, you know, below him. Or like a lot of people think today, you know, Jesus is just another God among many. All roads are going to lead to God sooner or later. Paul is talking about a God who is far above all other gods who are in fact not gods at all, but a God who knows us because he created us, a God who wants to be known by us as much as we can understand, a God who desires relationship with us, who calls us out of our wickedness into his glorious light, a God who gives us an inheritance, undeserved and unearned, but he shares his infinite wealth with us. A God who loves us so much that he considers us to be his greatest possession. And a God whose infinite and almighty power works on our behalf. This is not a God who's just head and shoulders above other gods. This is a God who's so magnificent and so magisterial that everything else in heaven and earth is under his feet. Not just head and shoulders. It's under his feet. So God gave us his own son. He made him head over all things for the church. It's important symbolism here. As believers, as followers of Christ, we've become something entirely new. We're the body of Christ, and he's the head. We're all part of this, through the Spirit, we're all part of this living connection with Christ. We're united to him as members of the body. 
So when we say we don't need the church to be a Christian, we're missing the big picture. When we say that digital or or TV church on the sofa is just as good as in-person church with believers, we're missing the point. It may be helpful. It may be necessary for a while. We're not disputing that. But we're talking about making the actual decision of saying, I'm just as good here at home than being with the body of believers. Because the body only functions well. It only functions properly when all the members are present and accounted for. We are the body. You're part of the body. Even if from time to time you feel like an appendix and you're not really sure why you're here, what purpose you may serve, It doesn't mean you don't have a function in the body. It doesn't mean you have nothing to contribute. You are part of the body. And when you reject the church, you are rejecting the full body of Christ, including the head. I know this can be hard to hear, but that's what's laid out here. We're all part of the same organism. We're all part of the same body. And as the head, it's Christ who keeps the body functioning properly. The head keeps us from danger. The head protects us from harm. The head leads us to safety. You know, the, the, the one clear <laughs> idea that came to mind through all this, is it's like, you know, if, if you've raised a four-year-old boy, it's amazing what the head can take. <laughs> it's amazing how the head protects us. The head leads us to safety. We are united with Christ unless we choose to separate from the body. And none of this would be possible if Jesus was still rotting away in a grave somewhere. The empty tomb proves that Jesus was who he said he was. It proves that God can and will do what he says he will do. It means that we too share in the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation. We have that power in us. That pattern will continue in us. It's interesting when you think about the fact that all four Gospels report on God's power that's on display through the ministry of Jesus Christ. All four Gospels are about Jesus, which is right and appropriate. And then we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We get to the book of Acts and we see that same power that was at work in Jesus is on display in the lives of ordinary men and women. The body. The believers, the followers of Christ. And what made the difference? From ordinary ordinary to extraordinary, what turned them from ordinary people to miracle workers in many cases? It was the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. From the love of of the Father, through the gift of the Son, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are called and empowered to new life, to a new family. We're given a new purpose. We'll explore that more as we go throughout the book. Father God, we are uh, amazed. We are awestruck. Grateful is not even a big enough word for your grace and mercy on display towards us. Just the, the fact that you consider us 
treasure. All of this plan was in place for us from before the foundations of the world were laid. You knew how this was going to lay out. It's an amazing thing to consider. Lord, I I pray that that as we go through this this next week, these weeks, months, whatever it is, that when we struggle, when when our our, uh, faith is challenged, when we are tempted, Lord, we, we would just remember the fact that you treasure us so highly that you sent your son to die for us. You left us the gift of the Spirit so that we're not here alone. We're not dealing with all of these things by ourselves. We are, we are not alone in dealing with issues of the flesh. Jesus Christ sits at the right hand interceding for us. The Spirit is in us. Lord, I pray throughout this next week especially as we're, as we're building towards a celebration of Easter that we have a sense of your power at work in us. Lord, give us boldness to, to, to talk to, to share significant life issues, to share spiritual discussions with friends and, and neighbors, not in an annoying, offensive way, but in a helpful, hopeful way that shows them your love for us. We can't leave out the part about how bad we are. We are bad, but that highlights how good you are. Lord, I pray that you just give us wisdom and boldness to, to move throughout this week. We meditate on your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.